reading this morning is taken from the book of Revelations, chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. And as Ben said, this can be found on, still found on, page 1234 of the Church Bible. To the church in Pergamon, to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Quite a dramatic thing for Jesus to say to the church in Pergamum. So what is it about this place, Pergamum, that Jesus says that about it? Well, Pergamum is different from the other cities in Revelation in two ways. First, it's 15 miles inland. It's not a a port city. It's not a trading hub. Uh, It is a city that is dominated by three things. Political power, it is the capital of the region. Learning, it's a city a bit like Oxford or Cambridge that is renowned for uh, its intellectual pursuit. It held uh, a library with 200,000 books in it, scrolls. Uh, That may not seem like that much, but in a day when everything had to be copied out by hand, it was extraordinary. There's only one greater library in the whole of the ancient world, and that was the one at Alexandria. And Pergamon was so comparable that on at least one occasion, they managed to entice the librarian from Alexandria to come to the library in Pergamon. So it's a, a, a place dominated by political power, In fact, the leader uh, of uh, the governor of of, um, Pergamum carries what is called the the power of the sword within uh, the Roman hierarchy. There are two kinds of of governorship. Uh, The higher kind is the one that carries the power of the sword, the one that can actually wage war on behalf of the empire. Uh, And uh, Pergamum is such a city. Political power, great learning, and as a religious center of pagan uh, uh, Roman religion. There's a huge altar to Zeus, 90 feet across in Pergamum. It now, I believe, resides in Berlin. It's a, it's a, it's a great wonder. The temple of Zeus at Pergamum, Pergamum was uh, known throughout the region and through the known world. It's a place for worship of, of, of that king of the 
Greco-Roman pantheon. Zeus, known to his worshippers as a saviour. Also in Pergamum was uh, the great centre uh, for the worship of the healing god, Asclepius. Now you may be familiar with Asclepius' symbol because it still uh, adorns many uh, pharmacies uh, around uh, the place, which is the staff with the serpent entwined around it. Does that ring a bell? So the serpent round the staff is the symbol of Asclepius. And, and so uh, prominent in, in ancient medicine was uh, Pergamum, uh, that it's the place where the great physician Galen came from, if that means anything to you. Uh, but uh, perhaps it, it, it may make more sense to you when, when you hear that people described Pergamum, have more recently described per- Pergamum as the lords of the ancient world. Now, don't misunderstand my pronunciation. It's not sufficiently different to, to disambiguate. So we're not talking uh, uh, about uh, London uh, and cricket. Uh, we're talking about the grotto in France where people go to seek healing. People go on pilgrimage to Lourdes, don't they? Seeking healing for, for things that uh, otherwise they cannot find a cure for. And Pergamum was that kind of place. If you suffered from ill health and you could find cure nowhere else, you would go to Pergamum, to the Temple of Asclepius, and plead for healing. And tying the first and the last of these things together, the political power with the religious center, is the fact that Pergamum was the, really the first center in which emperor worship really developed within Rome. You may well be aware that uh, increasingly, uh, as the empire went on, the emperors claimed, first of all, to be uh, descended from the gods and then to be gods themselves and, and began to require worship. It's at Pergamum that that really took off. Uh, and uh, so it's a center for worship, not only of the saviour's use, not only of the saviour Asclepius, but the saviour Caesar, who bears the sword and whose governor in Pergamum bears the sword. Now you can imagine, can't you, how in a situation like that, and Pergamum is, is this extraordinarily imposing place. It sits uh, on a sheer cliff a thousand feet above the valley. It commands the entire area around it. It just has this feeling of solidity and power and strength. And you can imagine, can't you, how the Christians who lived there might have found it a pretty tough place to be. Where they stood out for not worshipping Zeus, for not worshipping Asclepius, for not worshipping the emperor or his power, where, in fact, the last of those can make you seem not only like a misfit, not only like an oddball, not only like someone who, who doesn't really fit in, but someone who is potentially traitorous, potentially a danger to civic safety. Caesar, after all, is the one who brings us peace, they believed. He wields the sword for our safety. And you refuse to bow the knee to Caesar? We're not sure we trust you. We're not sure you're safe. And so it was that on at least one occasion, that sort of pressure and oppression and then persecution broke out into real violence. The governor who bore the sword on Caesar's behalf had Antipas, the Christian, 
described here in the same words as Jesus is described by in chapter 1, verse 5, as the faithful witness was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Legend has it that Antipas was roasted to death in a giant bronze bull. But it doesn't really matter how he was killed. It matters why he was killed. He was a faithful witness. Like the other Christians in Pergamum, he did not renounce his faith in Jesus. He bore witness to Jesus. It's that word witness that we get the word martyr from. It's the same word in Greek. It's the first time I'm aware of the word martyr being used in this way. He bore witness to Jesus, and so he died. You can see, can't you, why Jesus might say to the people, it feels to you, doesn't it, like Satan is in control of this city. There are snakes everywhere, this serpent... Uh, you know, figures on, on the pole, the, the Asclepius. There are also snake-like things on the altar to Zeus. Reminds them of the serpent in the garden, who is Satan. But just that sense that there is a power at work in this city that dominates and it is opposed to those who follow Christ. So Jesus says to them, I know where you live. I know just how hard it is. And yet, you have remained true to my name. They're not ashamed to be known as Christians. And they've not turned away from their faith in him, even when, actually, they were officially required to do so by the state. That seems to be why Antipas died. That is certainly why uh, in the official Roman persecutions that broke out from time to time uh, in the first couple of centuries of the church's life, it was a refusal to reject Christ and bow the knee to Caesar that brought capital punishment on Christians. And Jesus can say to the church, you've held fast, you've not renounced your faith in me. Even though it cost one of you his life. And all of you disgrace. It's a powerful witness that the Pergamon Christians bear to us, isn't it? They knew that losing Jesus was worse than losing their lives. He was more precious to them than the breath in their lungs and the blood in their veins. And I have to say, that makes what comes in the next verse all the more shocking. Look with me, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now, some of you will know the story of Balaam really well, but many of us probably don't. You might, um, if you were into sort of alternative indie music in the 1980s, you might remember a band from the West Midlands called Balaam and the Angel. 
Not many. (laughs) But it's the only story in the Bible with a talking donkey. Doesn't get much better than that, does it? So what happens? Well, there is a king, Balak, the king of the Moabites, who sees Israel. They've left Egypt there. It's in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 22. Uh, Israel is camped uh, on on the plain. They're, They're on their way to the promised land. And Balak sees them, and he's terrified by what he's heard about them, by the fact that God is with them. He knows that he can't overcome them if God fights for them. Uh, And so he summons someone who is known to be a prophet of God called Balaam or Balaam, uh, depending on uh, how you pronounce it. I tend to switch between the two without any particular reason. But he calls on Balaam and says, come and prophesy curse on Israel. Come and call down curses from on high upon these people. And Balaam decides to go to Balak to hear him out, to hear his terms, and to find out just how much he's going to get paid. And so he gets on board his donkey. Do you get on board a donkey? I don't know. Anyway, he gets on his donkey and starts traveling to Moab uh, to go and see uh, Balak. And on the way, his donkey keeps stopping. uh, And it sort of veers off the road, and it crushes him against a wall, and he's beating his donkey with his stick. And suddenly, his donkey turns around and says, why are you beating me? At which point, Balaam doesn't say, hang on, you're a donkey, why are you talking? He says, because you have embarrassed me, and if I'd had my sword with me, I'd have killed you. At which point, the angel of the Lord, who the donkey has seen all along, is suddenly revealed to Balaam, and there he is with his sword drawn, and he says, if you'd gone another step, I would have killed you with my sword. Now, here's what you're to do. You, are to go, you can go to Balak, but you may only prophesy what God tells you to prophesy. And, and so Balaam goes, and six times he tries to curse Israel, and each time God only puts words of blessing in his mouth. God will protect his people. He watches over his people. He loves his people. And no one can overcome that. And no matter how hard Balak tries, no matter how much he pays Balaam, no matter how hard Balaam tries to curse Israel, it just comes out as blessing. So Balaam goes home. But then in Numbers chapter 24, something strange happens. Beautiful young women from Moab come into the Israelite camp and begin to seduce the men. Uh, and uh, the men are then led off with them to take part in worship of Moab's idols, Moab's gods. If you flip forward to Numbers chapter 31, you'll see that they've done that on Balaam's advice. And that is what uh, is being referred to here by Jesus. You have some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. You see, I think it's like this. I think it's an Aesop fable, isn't it? The sun and the wind. Do you know that? Sun and the wind having an argument about who's the stronger. And they see a man riding a horse, and he's got a cloak around his neck, and they say, okay, strongest wins, whoever can get the cloak off him. 
Sun says, fine, you go first. So the wind blows. And of course, the man just pulls the cloak tighter around him. So the wind blows harder, and he just pulls the cloak tighter and tighter around his shoulders. And in the end, exhausted, the wind gives up. And the sun says, it's my turn now. And the sun just shines its warmth on the man in the cloak. And what do you think the man in the cloak does? He takes it off. You couldn't force him to take it off, but you could entice him to do so. That is the evil genius of Balaam. You cannot come against God's people with force. You see that, don't you, in Pergamum. Uh, there's this persecution that breaks out against them, but they just seem to cling to Jesus all the tighter, and they're prepared to die. But seduction works. You can't turn God against his people, but what if you can turn the people against God? Turns out that's much easier to do. So eating food sacrificed to idols, uh, if you're familiar with the sweep of the New Testament, you'll know that that was quite a vexed question in the early church. Because lots of the food on sale in the local Tesco would have been sacrificed to idols when it was killed. And the Apostle Paul said, look, buy anything that's for sale in the market without asking questions of conscience. It's not the fact that it has at some point been sacrificed to idols that is the problem. This kind of eating food sacrificed to idols is about participating in the idol feasts, the pagan equivalent of Holy Communion. We've lost familiarity with sacrificial practice in, in the West, but Throughout the Old Testament, what you see is that when God's people make sacrifices to him, it's not simply a matter of them giving something up and it being given to God. Though some sacrifices are burned whole. But in general, what happens is they bring their sacrifice and then they sit down together to share in that food and they share fellowship with God. And in talking about attending idol sacrifices in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul talks about the participation in that meal alongside his talking about Holy Communion. And and he says, you know, it is a participation in the table of demons. Because Paul says, idols are not nothing. They are representatives of demonic power. So what the people are doing in Numbers and what they seem to be doing in Pergamum is actually participating in a relationship with idols. In a relationship, actually Paul, the Apostle Paul would say, with demons and being unfaithful to God. They're taking part, part in worship of things other than God himself. And the very first thing God says to his people when he gives them commandments is that their relationship with him is to be exclusive. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. Right at the heart of God's relationship with his people is that kind of exclusivity, which is the kind of exclusivity that you find in marriage. When you get married, you swear lifelong exclusivity to your relationship, don't you? 
And it's no coincidence that marriage is the primary kind of metaphor for God's relationship with his people through the Bible. It is completely exclusive. You, you can't worship other gods on the side. That is spiritual adultery. It breaks the relationship. And through the Bible, what the other thing that we find is that marriage between a man and a woman is sort of symbolic of that kind of faithfulness. It's the one relationship in your life that mimics your relationship to God in this sense and in this sense only that it is completely exclusive. You can't be married to two people at once. And if you're married to one person, you can't carry on any kind of romantic or sexual relationship with anybody else. Uh, and, and so it is that uh, at Baal Peor, where, where this thing with Balaam takes place, or at Sinai, uh, at Mount Horeb, where uh, when Moses is at the top of the mountain with the Ten Commandments and he comes down and the people are, are worshipping a golden calf, what also goes, goes along with that worship of the golden calf is, a, is sexual immorality, is engagement in sexual acts outside of marriage. And through the Bible, you'll find these two things, sexual immorality and, and idolatry, seem to go hand in hand and they seem to sort of mirror each other. And from the very start, Christians have always treated sex as something that is holy, that is sacred, kept only for the marriage bed. And so, this is just historically demonstrable. So, for instance, the uh, apologist Tertullian, in talking about Christians' uh, fidelity to Jesus Christ, Christians' desire to be faithful to Jesus, he talks about one of the most countercultural things about the church that there ever was. He says that Christian young women who are, who, who, who are suffering in the persecution, he says they, would, they, they fear the leno more than the leo. It's a pun, but actually what he's saying is that I, you know, don't you, that Christian women are so unafraid of death that they would rather go and face the lion in the amphitheater than the forced prostitution that you offer them as an alternative. That's the sort of thing that, that people were offered. You know, go and do this, uh, and we won't put you to death. And they said, send me to the lions. What we do with our bodies, the New Testament tells us, really matters. Now, of course, the teaching in Pergamum, the teaching of, uh, of Balaam or the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which seems to be very similar, would be very, very plausible indeed. Life here is unbearable for you, isn't it? And, you're, and it doesn't need to be. You're, you're not participating in the idol feasts. You're not, you're not sharing in the table of Zeus. You're not sharing in the table of Asclepius or the table of the emperor. You're not coming and taking part in, in, in these uh, sort of parties which masqueraders worship. You're not doing that. And as a result, you, you, you can't work. Your neighbors think you're scum. And just think about it for a minute. Is there anything magical about food? There's no reality to the idea that this food is, is in any way any different. It's just meat, isn't it? 
Just eat it. What matters is what you're doing with your heart and your mind. If in your heart you're faithful to God, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It's just meat. And the same with what we do sexually with our bodies physically. Look, you... You don't need to be so uptight. Your body's just meat. It will rot. It matters what you do with your spirit. It's so plausible. As long as you're right in your heart, as long as, you're, you know, as, long as your intentions are good, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It is plausible on the surface. But there are some things that immediately tell against that kind of line of reasoning. The first is that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, rose physically, he rose with a body. Christians don't buy into the idea that the only thing that matters about you is your soul or your spirit. Because the resurrection is physical. Your body is essential to who you are. We can't afford to allow that that idea to creep into our thinking. It teaches us all kinds of bad ways of approaching God, including the idea that actually good things in the creation are to be rejected because somehow they're unspiritual. And in 1 Timothy, Paul describes that as the teaching of demons. That's a a kind of reason to think about your body as mattering. However, in this context, in terms of the, the food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality question, and the word that Jesus uses here is porneia, which refers to any sort of sexual act outside of marriage. Porneia is the word we get pornography from. And, and, and Jesus is saying that you know, people who are coming and teaching the church that any of these sorts of sexual expressions are, are okay for Christians to take part in, They're following the teaching of Balaam, who, let's face it, in the Old Testament is a bit of a villain. But then the crucial thing is this. What does Jesus say in verse uh, verse 14? He says, I have a few things against you. Jesus holds this against the church. Uh, And then verse 16, repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, Jesus warns churches in in Revelation of all kinds of things, but this is the only time when Jesus says, I will come and fight. So we can come up with all of our reasons why maybe the the sort of old way of looking at, at sex and sexuality or at idol worship or anything else is a bit outdated, but we run the risk of making Jesus our enemy if we teach that. Now, at this point, I think I need to to just break off for a moment and, and, and say something about what Christians teach and believe about sex uh, as follows. This is about people who are teaching that it doesn't matter. And it's against those people that Jesus is going to come and fight. It is not the case that Christians teach that this is a religion for people who have always got it right in terms of sex. Christianity is not a religion 
for the terminally pure or for those who have never failed or who don't struggle. Christianity is a religion of forgiveness, of repentance, that teaches us that Jesus came and bore in his own body all the consequences of the things that we have done wrong in our bodies as he died on the cross. It is not the case then that if you have a sexual past or even a sexual present of which you are ashamed or of which if you believe the church is teaching you would be ashamed, that you are not welcome here. You are among friends and you are among people who have the same stories to tell. That's the Christian teaching. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what Christians do teach is that if you would follow Jesus Christ, that is going to have implications for what you do with your body. And that in the area of sex in particular, that means what Christians used to call chastity. That is abstinence outside of marriage and faithfulness within it. I can't think of a a simpler way to explain that. And that actually that approach to our own sexuality is a profound way of symbolizing the unique relationship that we have with God. The fact that it's exclusive. So Christians are to live relative to our sexuality in the same way that we live to God relative to our spirituality. And it's a symbol of that. And friends, I'll be honest with you, it has been for the last 2,000 years. And for people to come and teach in the church in Pergamum that that was not so was an extremely dangerous thing for them to do because they were making Jesus Christ their enemy. Now, at this point, I slightly tremble to say what I'm about to say. But I feel compelled by the Lord to do so. On Wednesday, between 2 and 7 p.m., that's this coming Wednesday, the General Synod of the Church of England, that's like the elected parliament of the Church of England, will vote on a series of proposals relating to human sexuality. Two items that the Synod will be invited to vote upon, I think run the risk of the Church of England becoming like the Church in Pergamum. The first is, when I was ordained, when I began the ordination process, I was required to give an undertaking that I ordered my life in line with the Church's teaching on sex and marriage. And the Church of England's teaching on sex and marriage is unequivocally clear that sex is only for marriage and marriage is between one man and one woman for life. The first proposal that I think is seriously dangerous to the spiritual health of the church is the proposal to remove that requirement from those going into ordained ministry. In other words, it no longer becomes something that the church is saying is essential to faithful Christian life. 
if that has passed. The second thing is that for the first time in its history, the church is proposing to bless sexual relationships outside the context of marriage, explicitly. How that doesn't somehow at least echo what we're reading in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, I honestly don't know. And so I think we stand at at a moment of very profound and very serious spiritual danger for the Church of England. And so... The only thing I can do is call us as a church to prayer. Please pray for our bishops. I actually believe that, you know, Bishop Martin wants to go the right way on this. He's very courageously put his name to a document this week that signals as much. So has Bishop Ruth, the suffragan bishop of Horsham. Pray for them. Synod is not going to be an easy place for them. Pray for our representatives uh, of of lay people on General Synod from from this diocese. Pray for Andrew Corns, one of the people who was involved in appointing me here. Pray for God's wisdom and strength and courage, for grace, for gentleness. But pray for the Synod. It has the potential what happens this week has the potential to split the Anglican communion worldwide and to split the Church of England in half. And I don't think anything this serious has happened in the Church of England probably since the Civil War. I really don't say that lightly. So one specific thing I'm calling us to is that given that Wednesday is the day of the debate, I'm calling anyone who's able to join me in fasting and prayer for the Synod. Now, it may well be that if you have a particular medical condition or, or other things, that fasting is not a safe thing for you to do. But if you can, take Wednesday as a day without food and seek the Lord for his church. In his wisdom, we have uh, our prayer meetings on Wednesday. 12.30 till 1.30, the debate begins at 2. We pray again at 7.30. Do join us if you can to pray. Because you see, the thing is, whilst there is a serious warning here in the letter to the, to, to the church at Pergamon, and it is serious, there is also astonishing good news the wonderful offer that Jesus makes to anyone like us who hears what the spirit is saying to the churches so here's where we close to the one who is victorious I will give some of the hidden manna I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it The manna was bread given to the people of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus talks about it as bread from heaven, hidden and then given. 
and to a people tempted to take part in the feasts of idols, Jesus says, don't do that because I'm going to give you bread that satisfies forever. The hidden manna, God's bread, bread from heaven. Eat with me. I'll also give anyone who holds fast to my teaching. He says, I will give you a white stone. When Antipas was condemned, what would have happened is the jury would have been invited to pass their verdict and they would have done so by producing a black stone for guilty and a white for innocent and the black stones would have plopped down on the pavement in front of him, signaling the end of his life had come. And Jesus says, if you overcome, if you hold on to me, I will give you a white stone. I will proclaim you innocent, forgiven, washed perfectly clean. You see, the governor might bear the sword. But I'm the one with the real sword. I'm the one with real power. And I will acquit you. And on that white stone will be a new name. What's he talking about? Well, I'm pretty sure he's talking about this. Let me just read you these verses from Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You'll be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate. You will be called Hepzibah and your land Beulah. The Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your joy, God, rejoice over you. God invites the church to the joy of a marriage that will last for eternity. The marriage between Christ and his church, in which God will give you a new name and rejoice over you and delight in you. The choice for many when it comes to following what God has to say about sex is to live a life without it. And what Jesus says to those people is you will not finish your life unfulfilled. You will not finish your life ruining missed opportunities. You will find that you enter into the glorious reality that these things are just a shadow that points towards into the relationship that you were made for. This beautiful, fulfilling relationship with the God who made you. The great Augustine wrote, Lord, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And Jesus says, come. Come to me and rest. Rest.